This podcast was recorded on Monday, August 12th, 2019. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or change. All right, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman, along here with my co-host, Samuel Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have a special guest calling in from the conference board. He's their chief economist, North America, Gad Levinon. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, so Gad, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us. Being kind of fixed income oriented investors, we look at a lot of the data sets you guys put out there at the conference board. So we appreciate all the work you do, first of all. But before we jump into what you do and help us think about where we are in market cycles, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself, where you started from your educational background and how you ultimately landed at the conference board. Sure. So I was born and raised in Israel. I uh, did four years in the army there and then started uh, studying economics in Tel Aviv University. I did my BA and master's there, and also while doing the master's, I also worked in the Israeli Central Bank for a couple of years, and then wanted to do a PhD. Everyone told me, if you want to do a good PhD, you should go to the U.S. I came to the U.S. I did uh, my PhD in Princeton. was always planning to go back to Israel, but after an American wife and three American daughters, I probably am already half American myself, and probably will stay here. <laughs> <laughs> what was your thesis written on? In my thesis in Princeton, it was uh, on three completely different topics. One is on a political economy topic, how the ethnic and racial composition of a geography impacts attitude toward welfare, uh, toward government spending, uh, political uh, voting. That was one. That seems pretty topical today, actually. Yeah. Actually, I already showed back then that especially states that had a high, a large increase in the share of Hispanics, the, the white population in those states had a more negative reaction or attitude towards welfare spending, and they tended to be more Republican. So it's already started more than 20 years ago. <laughs> and then another project was on a, a labor market-related project, also in the, related to ethnicity. Uh, this was focused on Israel and wage gaps between uh, Jews and Arabs in Israel. And a third topic was already when I started working at the conference board and finishing my PhD, I did a project on our consumer confidence index, what's the useful information in it and how it relates to other economic variables, pretty much across the board. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about the conference board? I'm not sure that everybody has familiarity. What is the conference board and what is your guys' objective and what do you do? So we're a non-for-profit where our main audience is the business sector. So uh, we have uh, hundreds or even thousands of large companies that are members of the conference board. And we do convening and research for them, especially with focus on the future and insights for what's ahead. Yeah, we're about over 300 people uh, 
headquartered in New York, but with offices also in Brussels and Singapore, Beijing, Hong Kong, and D.C. now. So thanks for the introduction, Gad. Currently at the conference board, what are your primary areas of focus? So what do you do on a day-to-day, or what are your current research topics that you're working on? So I'm responsible for our U.S. economic forecasting program, U.S. economic outlook. But more and more in recent years, I am shifting towards our labor market work. So the the two largest research areas at the conference board are economics and human capital, and labor market sits right in between. And it turns out that a lot of HR executives are really interested in labor market developments. Uh, so uh, it's a good topic for us, and I'm spending more and more time on that. And in particular, in recent years, I also am responsible for our Help Wanted Online program. So that together uh, with the data vendor, we collect uh, job ads from every job board in the United States, and we classify it by occupation, industry, location, any essentially any information that is on the ad, we can extract and classify it. It's kind of a real-time data set that tells you trends in uh, labor markets. So what are you seeing from that today, given the makeup of the current labor market? We hear about having these near-historic levels of unemployment. Some economists have debated whether there is or, or not a Phillips curve and the impacts of inflation. What are you seeing from this data set that you're gathering today, and how do you envision using this going forward? This data is from a macroeconomic perspective. It's very useful for seeing turning points because it kind of measures the number of job openings and job openings is a leading indicator of employment. So we are seeing some slowdown in that measure. It's been declining for several months now, which suggests, and indeed we are seeing a slowdown in employment growth. In general, I think the overall labor market situation. So the conference board, you asked before what are some of my research topics. So the main research that we've been focused here in the labor market area is on the tightening of the labor market. We already in 2014 came out with our first report about the looming labor shortages. Then it looked and sounded crazy and Plenty of people told us that we're crazy, but, you know, five years later and the unemployment rate is at the lowest in 50 years, it's truly harder to recruit and harder to retain, and uh, we're seeing acceleration in wage growth. And I think the most uh, recent development, especially after the revisions to the national accounts number, is that we're seeing Within the corporate sector, we're seeing a large increase in the share of uh, wages and salaries and a large drop in the share of corporate profits. So it seems like the acceleration in labor costs are hitting the bottom line of many companies. Now, whether or not we end up in inflation is an open question. I admit that I expected inflation to appear already, and so far it hasn't appeared yet, but it could. I think that's one of the most interesting and open questions in the U.S. economy right now. Right. I've said for a while, using a kind of wonky bond term, I said, if there is a Phillips curve, we've been at the convex moment for over a year or 18 months or so. And and really just getting to that kind of level where there are more job openings than people that are officially on the unemployed list. 
and it's been persistent for a while. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in this data set. You talked about kind of a tight labor market. How do you think about that? And how do you try to measure that? We hear the debate of the job openings and the skills that people have versus job openings. Are you seeing a mismatch of skill and labor? And how do you try to quantify these types of things? Or are you seeing something completely different? I don't know if it's a mismatch so much as simply that there aren't enough workers across the board. I think there are a few kind of mega trends that are impacting this. One is the, the retirement of the baby boomers. Yes, and now the large generation of baby boomers is already retiring in large numbers. So that basically brings the working age population to almost a complete stop. And at the same time, we have in the past decade, we had the weakest labor productivity growth that we ever had. So that means that companies, when they have to increase production and they needed to hire more workers, they couldn't get much more out of their existing workers. So the combination of a lot of baby boomers leaving and strong hiring and all of this in the longest expansion in U.S. history that eventually is leading to a very tight labor market. I think now almost every measure is showing that it's not just the unemployment rate. We have at the conference board in our consumer confidence index, one of the hidden jewels there is what's called the labor market differential. So that's the gap between the percent of respondents who say that uh, jobs are plentiful and uh, those who say that jobs are hard to get. And now this gap is historically high. It's only been higher in 2000. So according to this measure, if you look at quit rates, all of those measures are suggesting a very tight labor market. Also, recruiting difficulty measures from the NFIB, it's another good indicator, are all suggesting a very tight labor market. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because when you survey a lot of people out there and you have conversations about the labor market, what you find is a lot of people have this fear of technological displacement, that the robots are going to take over or that jobs will be automated away. But even though there's that fear, contemporaneously, you're suggesting that ultimately it's still a very tight market. And so are the fears unfounded or is it just that there are jobs and people aren't looking necessarily in the right place and it's the right skill set for those jobs? I think there are fears. Whether or not they're unfounded, time will tell. I would definitely say that in recent years they have been unfounded. So I think those fears, they kind of reached the peak right after the Great Recession around 2010, 2011. several books that estimated that in the future there will just not be enough jobs for all the people who want to work and but then that didn't turn out to be the case i think part of it was the result that a lot of the low-hanging fruit of replacing workers with technology already took place 10 20 years ago it's still happening but much more slowly it turns out that to replace the next worker with technology is harder than people expected. I think it's also part of the fact that in most of the past decade, we had a very loose labor market. Labor was cheap, profits were high, so there wasn't really strong incentive to reorganize companies and make them more efficient, more automated, and and that contributed to the weak productivity growth. Now, if this theory is true, then we should start seeing some faster automation, faster productivity growth, and we may be. There are some 
tentative signs of green shoots that maybe there is a little more automation. So we'll have to wait and see. One of the things that you mentioned earlier was just, I suppose, on the backdrop of missing inflation was the counterpart of rising wages and perhaps some of this being spurned by the minimum wage hikes. Do you have any thoughts on how that impacts labor costs or profitability at the corporate level? In most of the last several decades, wage growth was significantly faster for the highly educated white-collar workers and slower for blue-collar and manual services workers. But what we are seeing now in recent years is that wages for blue-collar and manual services workers are rising significantly faster than those for white-collar. And that is when you look deeper, you see that it's actually a result of a tighter labor market for blue-collar and manual services. If you, for example, look at the unemployment rate by occupation and compare it to normal times, the low unemployment rate is especially visible in those blue-collar and manual services and much less so in the highly educated white-collar. And on top of that, you have the minimum wage hikes that are also mostly pushing the wages at the lower end. So as a result, you see much faster growth rate in the lower end. And for the first time after several decades, we are seeing a decline in wage inequality, which is very surprising. Yeah. So when you think about that, is that just a nationwide trade? I know when you look at the data, you can parse it by kind of states and you can go off of educational levels. You talked about white collar versus blue collar. Are you seeing different trends within various states? And are those linked to these higher minimum wage states versus some of them that are at the federal minimum wage? So definitely uh, minimum wage is having an impact where minimum wages went up. So there's definitely that. But I think in general, in terms of labor market tightness, the story is of uh, tightening is true across most of the U.S., but there is some variation. So, for example, the Pacific, uh, California, Oregon, Washington, that's where we see uh, the tightest labor market right now, where we see a little looser labor markets are in the South Atlantic, uh, Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, uh, Virginia, Maryland. So that's where we see a looser labor market. But it's pretty pretty tight across the board. Okay. So on that same kind of labor topic, we're doing some research. We realized that you yourself had created the Conference Board Employment Trends Index. Can you tell us about that and how that differs from some of the other off-the-shelf metrics we see, whether from the Bureau of Labor Statistics or like? Yeah. So you know that the Conference Board, we have the leading economic index, which is meant to signal economic recession. So we had that since the 90s. And at some point, we realized that sometimes periods of uh, decline in employment vary from periods of economic recession, so especially the jobless recoveries that we had in the 90s and the 2000s. So we decided to create kind of a leading index for employment as opposed to the economy as a whole or recessions. And so what we did is we kind of chose the best leading indicators of employment, the ones that when they drop, you'd expect uh, to see a drop in employment a few months later. And we aggregated them into the Employment Trends Index, which uh, turned out to be a very accurate index for movements or periods of declines in employment. Yeah, well, if we look at that index, we see that the most recent high was hit back in August of last year. 
What is that telling us today? Is it time to be concerned about the trends in employment? You'd already mentioned that some of these things are showing slowing. What is that indicator signal today and how should investors interpret it? Yeah, it kind of flattened already in the summer, which suggested that there will be a slowdown in employment growth. And indeed, uh, we have seen in the first half of 2019, we already saw a pretty visible slowdown in employment growth. But if you look at the past uh, periods of recessions or employment declines, you saw a very rapid drop in the employment trends index before that happening. And at the moment, you see more flatness than decline. So I think it's still far from signaling an employment decline, but it certainly suggests that we won't see any acceleration and perhaps a further period of slow employment growth. So given the discussion that we've had on labor and employment trends, it seems like tight labor, record low unemployment rates as measured through the U3, the employment trends index seems somewhat healthy. It all seems like a bright spot in terms of where our economy is. I wanted to ask, number one, how would you rate the overall labor market here in the U.S.? And then number two, how you would contrast that with perhaps the other indicator that you mentioned earlier, the leading economic index, which has shown signs of deterioration or weakness over the last few quarters? So I think from the labor market perspective, you can break it down to where we are now and what's the momentum. So where we are now is a very healthy labor market. Almost everyone who wants a job can find one. It's a great time to be a worker, an employee in the current U.S. labor market. Also, job satisfaction is moving up. That's another survey that we have. It's a more difficult labor market for employers because it's harder to recruit, harder to retain, harder to control labor costs. So that's kind of the snapshot. In terms of momentum, I would say there is slowing. Still, I would say at a solid rate, a rate that certainly is more than enough to continue to tighten the labor market because, as I mentioned earlier, the working age population is barely growing at all. So even more modest employment growth is enough to continue to tighten the labor market. Now, in respect to the rest of the economy, I would say that employment and labor market in general are more lagging indicators. So you won't see the first signs of recessions you're not going to see in most in labor market indicators to a large degree. And that's where we have the U.S. leading economic index. And that I would say it's still uh, the last month uh, we had a bit of decline. It's still not uh, alarming, but I would say there is certainly more caution and more concerns about the U.S. economy than we had a few months ago. Yeah, well, when I look at the components, it's something that we look through around here. I see one of the biggest weights comes into weekly hours, average worked in the manufacturing sector, which had a pretty sharp drop in the last couple of reports. On top of that, the next highest one is new orders on the ISM. Then you look at the expectations for the business economic conditions, and you also include the yield curve. And so when you pull that together, it's about 70% of that ratio. And so the yield curve's obviously given us some negative signals. We've seen a little bit of weakness there, but that's the leading economic indicator too. Don't you guys have a coincident one as well? I think that one's kind of more geared towards manufacturing. We do have a coincident index that has a employment, personal income, industrial production, and manufacturing and trade sales. Both the leading index and the coincident index are biased to some degree towards the manufacturing sector. 
partly because it is uh, the best measured sector, but also because it's more cyclical. But I would say that the manufacturing sector in recent months, I would say last six months or even more, is doing worse than the rest of the economy, partly because manufacturing obviously is more connected to the rest of the world than some of the more domestic industries. And we are seeing stronger weakness in the rest of the world than we are seeing in the U.S. So I think like if there is a one important bias in the leading index is that it is heavily influenced by the manufacturing sector. So at least some of the components are suggesting a stronger weakness than there is in the economy overall. That brings up a question that I've had, and I know we've had some discussions around this here in the office, is the impact or the importance of manufacturing data and its counterpart often, the services sector, especially when we're looking at PMI numbers. People tend to say that the manufacturing does have a greater impact on the U.S. economy, even though it's had a declining share of input into the U.S. economy. People say 30% manufacturing, 70% services is what the U.S. economy is today. Do you see the services more specifically as some type of future input that it's going to be um, introduced into your indicators? Yeah, we are something that we have been thinking about for a while. The thing is that for a lot of the services sectors are not very cyclical. Like, for example, healthcare is something that you can barely see in recessions if you look at time series of health-related spending. And so for the purpose of leading recessions or showing recessions, it's not as useful as manufacturing, which is much more cyclical. Also, it's harder to measure a lot of the services in an accurate and timely way, whereas there are plenty of good measures for the manufacturing sector. And also another thing is that an indicator for us to feel comfortable that it's a good indicator, we need the kind of a couple of recessions to feel comfortable that it's giving us the right signals. And and some of the services indicators are newer, and we kind of felt that they didn't have enough runway to be included in the index. But we certainly see it as an important thing to consider and in the future add to the index. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because one of the major criticisms of the personal consumption expenditure that the BLS calculates is that the healthcare component tends to come from reimbursement rates from Medicare, which obviously tend to understate um, what people's true inflation rate is, or I should say, true cost of actual healthcare services. And so I think we are sensitive to thinking about that. Do you guys have a basket of measures that measures, you mentioned the service economy. Do you have a basket that looks at just the service side of the equation? Or are you just, are there still in the lab that you're creating and need that more robustness of having more uh, data points to look at? We have uh, usually every year or two, we kind of sit down and evaluate the index and consider new indicators. There are, for example, the ISM non-manufacturing is certainly a candidate. The problem with that is that it started in 1997, so we felt that it needed a little more time. But that, I think, could be an indicator that we will look at in the future, all kinds of transportation measures that may have potential. So there are a few alternatives that we are considering, but none of them 
reached the level that it entered the index yet. Yeah, so one of the other measures we use a lot around here in trying to measure this core piece of services comes from the consumer. We've always found it interesting to look at the consumer expectations, present situation, and overall confidence. How does one think about those? Are they good? Typically, confidence is a lag indicator. People feel good because they are hired, they have a good job, they haven't been laid off, wages are growing. But what do you think about the expectations from the consumer as well as present situation of the consumer? We do include in the leading index the expectation component of both our consumer confidence measure and Michigan. We kind of average the two. And, and it is a useful indicator. I think one kind of secret of using consumer confidence measures, it, it's very important what transformation of the data that you use. So, for example, for the expectation components, you should use the level of the expectation. But when it comes to the present situation, it's actually the change in those indexes that is the signal, the more useful signal. So in using it, I would recommend use the level when you use the expectation components and use changes when you use the present situation components. And is that due to the fact that some of that present experience leads into the expectation side? Or why do you see those differences? Yeah, because essentially in the present situations, what we're asking the respondents, what's the current conditions of businesses in your area and it's good or bad? So it is uh, the change of whether it's becoming more good or <laughs> becoming better or worse that is related to economic growth, whereas in the expectations, we are asking, how do you expect economic conditions to be six months from now, better or worse? So that is more directly related to economic change. Okay. And it's only six months. It's not a year? Yeah. In our measure, it's six months. Yeah. So it's a little bit of faster signal than some of the other kind of consumer metrics you get. Yeah. If some of the other services, it's 12 months. I think if consumers can or households can forecast six months into the future, that's already <laughs> a big plus. <laughs> yeah, I think when you start to hear some of this data about people not being able to afford or they only have maybe one month's salary saved or they can't afford if they have like a $1,000 bill or sometimes their car, it is pretty difficult to believe that they can actually forecast six months out. So these confidence and expectation surveys are exactly that, and they seem to be different than your other indicators in that you require respondents to fill the data set there. Could you give some insight into how you select these respondents, how often they change in terms of the pool of respondents? It is a phone survey of a representative sample. It's actually the, we use the Nielsen company that's known for the TV ratings. They also uh, do, so they have a lot of experience in doing surveys. And Sorry, so this is a mail survey. There is some overlap between months. I, I don't remember exactly the details, but it's a mail survey. We target around 3,000 uh, respondents per month. So we get a little less. It's one of the largest surveys the consumer confidence, others are uh, significantly smaller. So we actually can get this, do some breakdowns. We started uh, releasing measures of consumer confidence by state for the larger states. So it's a pretty good tool. So that leads me to the next question. We've talked about the labor market. We've talked about the state of the consumer. We've kind of talked a little bit about the economy. 
where's your research leading you at this stage? So you focused a lot on labor markets throughout your career. What are you working on in innovation? What are you thinking for for research? When you guys revisit this for the 2020 meeting, what are you putting at the top of mind there? So we're now, we identified the problem already several years ago, but what we're doing research on now, and we're expecting a large report in the fall, is on how companies are reacting to the labor shortages, what what solutions they find, both from the company perspective and also from the economy perspective. Immigration is probably not going to become a solution in the current political environment. So what else can the country to, can do uh, to find more workers? So one solution is to have a higher labor force participation rate. And the main other solution is automation, uh, more automation and more efficient labor productivity. So those topics are some of the topics that we are probably going to work on in 2020 to understand better where is the potential for automation, where is the potential, what groups of population we are seeing an improvement in labor force participation, those types of questions. Yeah, I think it's going to be tough to get birth rates uh, to help contribute to the economy very quickly, right? Birth rates, yeah. No, but the labor force participation rate, that's... If that already exists, right? It's just getting more people to get back into the workplace, right? Yeah, exactly. The groups of the population that are more detached from the labor market, how can we increase their participation? Yeah. Right. And so a lot of that has to do with incentive structures. So that could be wages, benefits, or something to incentivize people to want to come back to work. Yeah. And we are seeing already a, a significant improvement in labor force participation, but it's still not a very high historically. So there are some barriers. How do we get more people to join? I mean, one major barrier, especially for the people without a BA that we've seen in recent decades, there's a large increase in the share of uh, people who are not in the labor force due to disability. It's really a very high for people with a high school or less, and there has been a large increase. Uh, part of it is because it's easier to get on a disability now than it used to. Part of it is because there was a truly a deterioration in health situation of many workers and how do we get to more of those people to join the labor market? Yeah, well, that's a big question for our economy. And I think that's not really that popular politically, at least when we listen to the debates today of people trying to offer up solutions in that area. It seems to be that it's the other side that we need to give people money. We need to get people better paying jobs, but it's not thinking about that other missing link. So we look forward to hearing more of that research as you guys compile that. It definitely seems like you guys are doing good work there. Thank you. Yeah, we'll keep you in the loop. <laughs> okay, thanks. So with that, I think I'm going to turn it back over to Sam. He has a favorite part of the show he likes to do before we let you leave, Gad. So I'm going to let him explain it to you. All right. So my favorite part is the verbal Rorschach test. And Gad, what I'll do is I'll provide a series of alternating prompts between you and Mr. Sherman to which you will both provide top-of-mind responses. I like that you call them prompts now. They're not words. They're not phrases. They're prompts. Slowly starting to improve upon the, uh, <laughs> the description here. Okay. So, All right. The first one's going out to Mr. Sherman with mid-cycle adjustment. <laughs> That's my response. I laugh at the Fed and their mid-cycle adjustment. It sounds like a cutting regime to me at this point. Next one to Mr. Lebanon, labor mobility. Slowing. 
Data mining? Hype. <laughs> I'll say dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> this one back to Gad with econometrics. Extremely important, more than theory. I like it. Big data, Mr. Sherman. Eric. So for those of you who don't know, we got a guy here named Eric. He focused on data. I like to call him Big Data. So shout out to Eric and Big Data. <laughs> AI. A catch-all phrase. Back to Sherman with facial recognition. Scary. Over to Gad with Hong Kong. Scary. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer, yeah. Sherman with meatless meat. Haven't tried it yet. Will you? I'm waiting for the meatless pork. I want to try the pork side of the equation. I'm not going to start with the burger or the chicken. I'm holding out for pork. <laughs> and Gad, gold. A wedding ring. I don't know. <laughs> Spoken like a true married man. <laughs> and the final one for Sherman is going to be Oktoberfest with a K. Beer. And then the last one for you, Gad, nickname. Charlie. <laughs> yeah, you got to explain that. New... I like it. But let's, let's hear the explanation. <laughs> it's actually, we got a new puppy and we called him Charlie. So it's actually not his nickname. It's his actual name. But that's the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess Gad backwards dag. It's kind of close to a dog, right? So. <laughs> I'm trying to tie it all together. But Gad, we really appreciate this. I appreciate all the insights too. A lot of people, our listeners and investors may not be familiar with the conference board, but I think you did a good job of explaining how important the role is, the research you guys do. And we really thank you for your time today and sharing those insights. So thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. Happy to do it again in the future if you're interested. Absolutely. We'll do that and get some updates on your research. So with that, again, everybody, this is Sherman Show. You can give us feedback, shermanshow at doubleline.com. You can find these on DoubleLine's website. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, now Spotify. Also on top of that, we have a YouTube channel. You can go to youtube.com backslash Capital. That is youtube.com backslash Capital and catch some of these videos that we'll host live as well. So again, tune in for the next episode coming soon. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2019, DoubleLine Capital.